Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Arvoretti. This is Stephen Robles and this week we have a special interview with the guys from Christian Intellectual. This is Jacob Brunton and Cody Libolt. They're going to be talking about contrasting the difference between race and culture, individualism versus collectivism, social justice, and more. Before we jump into the interview, we want to remind you again about impact360.org. Check out their online courses on truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. And you can get $25 off when you use the promo code FREEMIND when you sign up for one of those online courses. And don't forget about checking out their gap year program. That's a nine-month program for rising seniors before they go off to college. They can go to the Impact 360 Institute and for nine months be trained in Christian apologetics, how to defend their biblical worldview, and more so they can be ready when they go off to university. You can get the application fee waived also when you use the promo code FREEMIND. And now here's our interview with Jacob Brunson and Cody Libolt. Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. Uh, super excited, man, today to have these these brothers on here. They, uh, I just actually found. I don't know how I discovered their work this week. Uh, it just popped up and took a deep dive and tried to read as many articles, listen to as much as I could, and I, I was so so blessed and informed. Um, it, I'll let you guys talk a little bit about the organization itself. But one of the things that stood out to me immediately was the clarity uh, with which you guys spoke and brought to issues, the depth um, of understanding and biblical understanding that you brought, also philosophical understanding that you brought to these topics, but also the courage to take on stuff that really is uh, really difficult to talk about and, and say things that are unpopular, but true and that need to be said in this time. And so, Really excited to have you guys on this God and Government series. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, man. Um, well, real quickly, can you guys just tell our audience a little bit about what your organization, I think it's called the New Christian Intellectual, or just tell us a little bit about what you guys do and what it is and how they can connect with y'all. The website is at christianintellectual.com, and I'm Cody Leibolt, and Jacob Brunton is the other co-founder along with me, and we have other writers that come and do guest articles, and so we have a video channel, podcast articles, talking about how people want to understand the intellectual landscape as Christians that are conservative, biblically orthodox Christians, and we're reformed, and we talk a lot about politics, we talk about uh, motivation and ethical theory and even epistemology. So we're all over the philosophical spectrum there. And uh, in this current controversy about the woke church, we are taking a strong stand against the woke church. We believe that it'd be, it'd be great if the seminary presidents were out there fighting this battle, but we don't see them doing it. So we decided to try to equip people to understand what's going on and how to speak about it. And so I love this because um, it's it's kind of a weird time in the church. You guys are coming from a Reformed background. Uh, our listeners know about my background, so I won't spend much time, but we have never talked. So, you know, I'm coming from a more charismatic background. I grew up in that world, went to Southeastern AG school in Central Florida. And then I'm like halfway through a master's in science and religion at Biola. Um, my journey has been probably a bit different from you guys. We, there's probably some areas where we'd see things differently, but I find myself like saying yay and amen to almost everything I'm, I'm hearing you say and, and, and seeing you write. Um, because, you know, my wife, we're, we're an interracial marriage couple. Um, 
And we are also artists by trade. Uh, my wife spent many years traveling, singing background for a guy named Toby Mac. And I've been on the road on the gospel side with Kurt Franklin, Donnie McClurkin. So we kind of met and it's, it's a weird situation. Uh, and then we started a duo group together uh, called Seth and Nerva. And in that process, we were we started our first album with Integrity Music. Uh, I started kind of down the woke lane. And so I like to say sometimes that I've become double woke. Um, be, um, but we can talk about that next episode. But one of the things that's interesting for me, coming from the background that I am coming from, we didn't... Um, it was, it was more of an apolitical. We didn't think much about biblical worldview. In many ways, it was anti-intellectual growing up. Um, so I'm finding myself these past couple of years climbing out of that and really trying to develop a Christian worldview, particularly with regards to politics. And I'm seeing many in the charismatic Pentecostal world also being awakened to that and diving into that, which is encouraging. But also, I think it's sort of like the Southern Baptist world where there's a there's a split. And even my old university, uh, in many ways, I think, are propping up a lot of the bad ideologies that are floating around the culture right now. Um, but the reason I'm excited to talk to you guys today, because I feel like you really are going to educate me even more in our audience on um, government from a biblical perspective and just from a rational perspective. So, Without, you know, taking too much more time on me, what, how do you guys see, you talk about Big Eva, and I had never even heard that term before this week. Uh, why don't you, one of you can explain that term, and then where do you see Big Eva in this conversation of government from a biblical perspective right now? Big Eva is sort of a catch-all term to uh, describe uh, it stands for big evangelicalism. So you hear big pharma or big business. This is big evangelicalism. And it's meant to describe the the movers and shakers, uh, the leaders of evangelicalism, uh, primarily the people who are most influential in the major in evangelical institutions. So this would be uh, seminary presidents, uh, um, major ministries. So the SBC is a is a big example, but it's not exclusive to the SBC. It's just the SBC is the biggest denomination. Um, so the various SBC uh, seminaries are a good example of that. And then the other entities, Lifeway, um, the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, those sort of organizations under the SBC. But then in addition to that, there's the Gospel Coalition, which is a big coalition of a lot of people who sort of agree on Reformed theology, but they disagree on lots of other, you know, more secondary issues like baptism, things like that. But, you know, they come together uh, for the gospel, and, and the, there's a conference together for the gospel, you know, so nine Marks Ministries with Mark Dever. All of these are sort of uh, combined together under that term, Big Eva. It really just sort of stands in for the the major influential people in the evangelical world, the people who are influencing pastors and churches when it comes to how we ought to think about important political and cultural issues. It also includes the book publishing companies. Lifeway is a big one and yeah. others like Zondervan. And you can see that they have a huge, uh, they have a business incentive to platform certain people and then to make sure that the people that they have invested in continue to be popular over the long term. And that creates sometimes a conflict of interest because if the person changes in their theology or starts teaching socialism, 
then what are they going to do? And so, and that, that's the concern that we have is that there's this industrial complex around, uh, around teaching people how to understand biblical worldview issues and that there's uh, a change. You can see very dramatic change in the last several years of what this industrial complex is teaching. What has that change been? So we've, uh, a couple of years ago, we saw the, the change within the church was let's become more accepting of uh, left-wing thoughts, uh, ideology within the church. And the, the pressure was let's not judge these people. You know, let's, let's make room. And so an example of that would be Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman talking about how can we love our, our fellow church member who's who differs from us politically. And then depending on which group you're talking about, in some of some churches, it became, let's talk about justice for the poor and the oppressed all the time. And that's the only thing we talk about. And there's this supposition that never gets explained that whenever the Bible says the word oppressed or poor, that it's talking about democratic policies today, and we should support democratic policies. So there's within the church, there's just been this takeover of younger leaders that embrace this. And within uh, one other one other sector within the evangelical movement to, that's, that's important to this is the nonprofits, you know, the, the charities that are feeding people or that are doing missionary work. The, the younger leaders coming up in all of these organizations are, um, they're college educated and they're bringing in ideas about uh, leftist Marxist political goals and they're calling that Christianity. And so we're seeing that and, and it, you know, 10 years ago, they started talking about social justice. What do we think of this? And now it's come to a head where everybody has to have an opinion about it because it's, it's splitting churches now at this point. Yeah. And that's interesting because, you know, like I said, coming out of the charismatic background, we just didn't think about politics, but oddly enough, I started traveling doing music in the Southern Baptist world about 15 years ago. And I noticed it didn't do much better. And then I, uh, we were worship leaders at a reformed church most recently <laughs> And uh, they were on the social justice side of things. Um, and so, you know, I don't, do you, do you guys think there has been a vacuum in education in the evangelical church in general and the area of politics that has created room for social justice to run in unchecked? Or how would you see that? I think that's probably a good description or at least a, a major contributing factor to the problems that we're seeing now. That There was a long time where conservatives and evangelicals sort of said that it was sort of the message that you, you see mocked nowadays of just focus on the gospel, uh, just preach the gospel. Um, and the idea was we're not going to get involved in political and cultural issues. Uh, one big example of this is the whole multiculturalism movement within evangelicalism, especially in missions um, and that, in a lot of ways, that's where it started, um, and and it's because it tied uh, in our minds conceptually. We tied race and culture together, and so if you don't want to be a racist, then you have to be multicultural, um, and and it led to this sort of cultural relativism, where in order not to be accused of discriminating discriminating against certain races you have to not discriminate against any cultures. But the problem is that culture pertains to ideas and values primarily. Um, sometimes there's, you know, different food and music styles and things like that are, that are preferences that are thrown in there. 
But the main things that have to do with culture are ideas and values. You know, what, what, what do we believe about the most important things in life? Uh, wh why do we hold certain things as valuable over other things and things like that? Um, that's the, the center of culture. And so this multicultural mindset, which was motivated uh, with a good, good intentions, you know, we don't want to be racist, um, it, it accepted that false equivocation between race and culture and it resulted in us basically saying, all right, we're just not going to touch cultural issues, uh, which is very closely associated with political issues. Um, and, and it can, kind of became this, let's just get along, uh, let's not rock the boat, uh, we want unity. Um, and for a while, it seemed like that was an okay thing because we didn't have the, the sort of influx of really, really terrible political and cultural ideology coming into the church the way that we see it now. Um, but for a long time, like you said, we had that vacuum where we thought that it was taboo or unchristlike or ungospel-ish uh, to talk about cultural and political issues. Uh, and that left the door wide open for the enemy to come in and say, well, you've got to talk about these things because these things matter. And they're right. Those things do matter. Culture matters, ideas matter, values matter, the way that the government uses the sword matters. Those are all things that actually matter. And God's morality speaks to those things because those are moral issues. And so when we decided not to speak true good things into those issues, you're right, we created a vacuum and really, really bad things came in. While we're on that subject, multiculturalism, because that sounds good, and we even have heard that for as, as a buzzword for years now. Um, explain what's wrong with that, and what would be, what would have been the right approach to that position? Like, what's its ideological opposite, um, and maybe how do we recover that? The most important thing to understand is the difference between race and culture, right? Race pertains to skin color or to some sort of genetic or biological origin. Culture pertains primarily to ideas and values, and then some preferences, some irrelevant minor preferences. Um, so multiculturalism would mean cultural relativism, and that's why it's bad. It's a form of moral relativism. It basically says it doesn't matter what you believe about important issues if, if those are your culture's beliefs, right? So um, some cultures believe it's okay to uh, eat other humans, right? Cannibalism. Um, some cultures in the past have believed that it's okay to exterminate Jews. Uh, some cultures today believe that it's okay to abort babies. Uh, these are all cultural issues. And so to, to adopt multiculturalism is to adopt cultural relativism, which is a form of moral relativism, right? So th that's why it's bad. That's why we need to reject it. One of the other bad things that people try to combat when they promote multiculturalism is this sort of idea that, well, the culture that I grew up in is the best just because I grew up in it, right? And that, that's just sort of, it's obviously an irrational and stupid position. Right. Um, but that, that, that's not the only alternative. So the, the right alternative would be we should all, from everyone who grows up in every culture around the world, should be striving for the best culture, right? There's an objective ideal 
for every moral issue. There's an objective ideal for every cultural issue. And we should be striving to cultivate, to make the culture that most accurately reflects the moral ideal. So that doesn't mean um, that our culture is perfect, um, but it does mean that we can say, all right, this culture is better than that culture. And, and this culture is worse than that culture. So that there's going to be a hierarchy, that you, a way that you can rank cultures objectively by looking at objective moral truths and ranking them against that. And, and mm. the, the message should be all of us should be striving for the best culture. I can, you know, feel the the discomfort that people would feel, but I think what you're saying is spot on. Um, How does that interact, you know, with conversations that would be, I guess, less um, weighty, but also that would matter in our churches, like with style of music and, you know, kind of the 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 subcultural background. You know, let's say we have 10% of people from um, a Latin background? Do we do 10% Spanish music to make them feel welcome at the table? Does, does, does rejecting multiculturalism as an ideology like that entail that, well, that means we're not even going to have conversations where we um, stretch out on what we're comfortable with on expression in the church? How does that relate? Does that make sense? Well, I'm going to say just a, a real quick principle, and then I'm going to hand it over to Cody, because Cody actually has some expertise in music, so I'll, I'll let him speak to this. Um, all, all I would say is we should be very careful to distinguish between um, objectively uh, superior cultural issues. So th- th- there are some styles of music that are objectively superior to other styles of music, but we should be very careful to distinguish between those and mere preferences. Um, and so if we're going to say that there's something objectively better about this type of music over this type of music, we should have a very good solid argument for it. And we should be open to hearing arguments against it so that we can make sure we're being objective rather than just arbitrarily asserting our own preference. Yeah. Music preferences is not the issue that we're talking about when we talk about multiculturalism. I mean, when we talk about the idea of multiculturalism, it's the idea that diversity of different cultures is a value as such. Diversity becomes a value for its own sake. Uh, Now, I'm not going to say that diversity is, as such, is a good or a bad thing, because I don't know diversity of what. You know, Mm -hmm. if you go to a different culture and it turns out that when the man dies – his widow has to be burned at the, at the stake like they used to do in India. Well, that's, that's, that's a cultural practice that we disagree with. And we say is wrong. We say it's sub-Christian. It, that's different from, uh, you know, that somebody wants to use rap music within a worship program. Now, my thought on rap music within a worship program is, is the music style, is, is it expressive of worship toward God? And if somebody could make a strong case that, their experience. I mean, Kanye West has music out. He's worshiping God with a certain style of music. I'm not going to be opposed to that in principle. If you can make a case that that's the music that individual people consider to be suitable for worshiping a God, whereas if the music were just ridiculous for its own sake and everybody perceived it to be that way, that would not be the kind of music that you would use to worship a God. I mean, honestly, I'd rather listen to Kanye's music than most of what comes out of Hillsong because most of what comes out of Hillsong, I mean, you know, you're a musician. There's very little going on musically or textually. And it's, it's, 
there's nothing about it that suggests this is music appropriate for worshiping a God. It could be music for singing about your girlfriend or your personal ups and downs emotionally. There's nothing about the music that suggests that there is an objective meaning outside of yourself. Um, and, and you can get that in certain kinds of music, music that has direction to it um, and, and music that has meaningful lyrics to it. So, I you know, I would say that if you are making the decision about leading your church and you have a, a group of people that are at your church or that are local to you that could be at your church that are different culturally and that's reflected in their musical tastes, will certainly be inclusive because inclusivity of God's people is a value. That said, there are pastors who will say, we're going to hire somebody because he's this color. And that would be partiality. And so that would, that would be a sin. So you don't make your decisions about, you, you don't, for example, look at a church that's all white and say, we're sinning because there's no black people in this church. If there's no black people around, that's not sinning. And, and it would be, you know, there are many reasons why people attend one or another church and to create a multicultural church or multi-ethnic church. Uh, I mean, that's, that's something that could happen. And that if, if we look at the book of revelation, we know it's going to happen and it's, it's going to be happening as people enter the kingdom, but it's not something that we would prioritize as this is a first level issue. We should, we should make our church leadership decisions around how can we solve this problem of, us only being black people or us only being Latino or only being white. That's, that's not necessarily a problem as such. Yeah. And that's how, I, that's how I'd address that as a leader. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up Kanye because I, I, I told my wife I, that was the best worship album, prophetic worship album I've heard in like years. <laughs> um, and you, did you have something, Jacob, before we move on? Yeah, I, I realized that, you know, you mentioned the 10% thing and Cody's yeah. talking about an all-white church. And, and there's been a lot of talk recently about how your your church's demographic should match the demographic of your community. Um, and, and I, I want to push back against that um, and say, for the same reason that Cody was saying, uh, that's not necessarily the case. Um, now, it could be, like, if, if, if you live in a community that's, you know, 50% white and 50% black and your church is 100% white, it could be that that's a sign or a symptom of racial prejudice in who you evangelize um, and and your membership, um, their, their decision not to evangelize their black neighbors or whatever. It could be a symptom of racism, but it's not necessarily a symptom of racism. It could be that all the black people in that neighborhood have bought into the idea that if they go to the white church, then they're selling out and they're not really black, um, wh which is a really evil, e really evil idea. Um, just as evil as if the white Christians didn't want to evangelize them, right? So th there could be a multiplicity of reasons for it. And it might be a reason to investigate, to say, all right, you know, it's really weird that our church looks so different from our demographic surroundings is there something going on and to look into it? And then if there is, of course, you should address it. Uh, you know, if there's something ex actually racist going on. Um, but if you find out or you don't find any evidence for anything racist going on, then it would be totally inappropriate uh, to intentionally implement partial uh, uh, policies that exhibit partiality in order to artificially make your church match the demographic. 
Yeah, no, that's helpful. And uh, sorry to sorry to bring us off on this topic. I, you know, it, it popped up when you said multiculturalism because, you know, it's just something that comes up kind of in our in our smaller circles of church, you get these books on multicultural worship, but they don't realize sometimes what gets smuggled in are these broad scale premises that are actually opposed to biblical thinking. And sometimes we uncritically adopt that in and we start making decisions and then grow and grow and grow and that and it becomes a bad situation. But to, um, to jump back to the, to the government side a little bit, um, will you guys maybe explain a little bit? You talk, I think in your tagline, you, it's a reason, de- defending reason, individualism, and capitalism, or something along those lines. Maybe can we talk a little bit about individualism today? What is that? And how does, is that, do you guys hold to individualism from a theological argument from the Bible or a logical argument kind of like Locke or Hume, or is it a combo of both? How do you, how do you cash that out? Okay. So the question of individualism on the origin, like the basic level is what should motivate people? Should people be fundamentally motivated by their own self-interest or should they be motivated by the interests that they understand the collective to hold? And if you, you know, if you believe that it is right for people to pursue their their own salvation because they value themselves like the bible talks about then that that's individualism you know i mean nobody is saved because they belong to a community people are saved because of their relationship to jesus which is personal individual and so you know you you can look at individualism on that level of motivation should you have the motivation of pursuing personal interest or not should you try to justify all of your decisions in life based on how it's good for somebody else? Or are you allowed to justify decisions based on your own interests? And are you allowed to look at the interests of others, say my my wife, my children, my friends, and say, when I bless them and do things to help them and things that are good for them, it's actually a blessing to me as well. And I I have an integrated understanding of their good is my good, but it's not because they're other than me. It's the reason why their good is, is, is my good is because of my relationship to them. It's because this is my wife. What's good for my wife is good for me. No, you know, like the Bible talks about, you know, no man hated his own body. The, the, these are individualistic premises when, when the Bible talks about what, you know, what good would it be for a man if he were to gain the whole world? What good would it be for a man? Not the collective. We're not talking about a collective or some cult that we're all part of. Let's look at the man's life. What, what would it be good for a man if he were to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Uh, and similarly, Paul and, and Peter, they preach, save yourself, save yourself. And, you know, Paul talks about the good teacher is going to save himself and his listeners. And, and that's the individualistic premise. Paul talks about how he doesn't want to be disqualified after all the work that he does. So that's on the personal level. But on, on the governmental, political level, uh, an individualist is somebody who says that the purpose of our laws is to protect individuals from other people who would violate their rights, right to their property, to their life. Collectivist says the purpose of the laws is to create what is best in our calculations for everybody altogether. And they, call, they talk about the common good or the collective good. And the collective good could involve taxing some people at 50% and taxing other people at 1% because they have less money, because we want to spread the wealth all around. That would be collectivism in practice socially. That's helpful. Um, So from your perspective, you're saying individualism, even on a personal level, 
is kind of the biblical view, like, cause I know some people will try, will argue that no, the Bible thinks much more communal collective. It's, you know, Israel, the church. Um, do you see it like a spectrum where you have extreme individualism and extreme collectivism and that we need to like slightly be on the individualistic side of the center is, is a biblical Christian or what, what, where would you put it? The outcome of biblical thinking on that issue. The picture of there being a spectrum from individualism to collectivism suggests that there's not just a principle here, like a black and white way of thinking about it. I'm going to, I'm going to say that, the Bible talks about collectives and considers collectives to be important. Yeah. And it talks about individuals and considers individuals to be important. So we have to affirm both of those things. That doesn't mean that, uh, that my ideology is going to be 90% individualism and 10% collectivism. Right. Uh, you have to ask what's the principle of the matter here. And so, uh, you know, when, when you're talking about the well-being of your church, the church exists for the edification of each individual within it. And it, it would be wrong to sacrifice the well-being of an individual if you thought you could uh, in, in order to, you know, make the rest of the organization flourish. It's just, you can't. And so this is, this is a, a metaphysical proposition here. You cannot make the collective flourish unless the individuals are treated as individuals, not treated as simply subservient to the collective. And it, it, so that's the proposition. And I'd say, that's true. So that makes me 100% an individualist. The, the problem with the spectrum uh, view, you, you, you'll find that we are very anti-spectrums we're, sure. or, or we're, we're anti-middle of the road. Um, so the, the problem there is, like Cody said, the Bible does affirm the, the goodness of collectives and the goodness of the individual. And if you attempt to pit those against each other on a spectrum and find the middle you're moving away from both goods that the Bible affirms in order to find some zero middle neutral ground that is as far away from both biblical goods as you can possibly get. And, and that is not how we should think about the goodness as Christians, right? We, we should want to pursue everything that's good with all of our might. So that should tell the fact that the Bible affirms both of them as good things should tell us that the spectrum is not a good analogy here. Um, and then the question is, all right, well, then how do these things relate to each other? If they're both good, then they're both good in the same universe. They're both good in God's universe, which means they have to have a relationship to each other. They have to relate to each other in a certain way. And the only two ways they can relate to each other is either the collective being primary over the individual or the individual being primary over the collective. And then you have to ask, all right, which of those models is biblical? And we would say the latter is with, with the individual being primary over the collective. And what we mean by that is a sort of metaphysical or ontological primacy where you, what are you talking about when you talk about collective, a collective of what? Is it a collection of rocks, a collection of tadpoles or a collection of human beings? And if it's a collection of human beings, well, each of those human beings is an individual. Each of them has an individual soul that is going to live forever, either in heaven or hell, right? So you have, to, you have to think about the fact that we're talking about human beings here when we talk about collectives. Uh, and there is no such thing as a collective apart from the individuals which compose it. Moreover, 
the only way to conceive of a human collective, the, the only way to uh, see them as relating to each other is either voluntarily, where each individual is assenting to being part of the group, or involuntarily, where each individual is being forced to be part of the group. Which of those is a picture of the church? Hopefully, we're going to say the former, right? Mm-hmm. Where the, the thing that unites us to each other is our unity with Christ, which is by faith, it, it's an, it, it, which is an individual reality. I have faith in Christ. You have faith in Christ. Cody has faith in Christ. And in virtue of that common faith, the, that common set of beliefs, we are unified to that extent. And then, you know, when you, when you add more detail to that, that common set of beliefs you get more and more fine-grained in, until you get a local church where we, we come together as a local church because we all agree, and then you have your statement of faith. These, these are the things that unite us. It's, it's the faith, the, the, the ideas that we all affirm and the values that we all affirm. But only individuals can affirm ideas and values. Uh, a group can't get together uh, apart from any individuals and uh, affirm ideas and values. So th- that's, the, that's the main reason that we emphasize the individual over the collective in this way is because that's the way that a healthy church is built up. It, that's the way any healthy community is built up. You can't have a healthy church. Imagine, imagine a church where each individual disagreed with every other individual on very important doctrinal and moral matters, right? Just like, like go, go through all the heresies and, you know, th- this guy believes heresy A, this guy believes heresy B, you know, all, all the way through until you hit every individual in the church. Uh, and none of them agree with any of, of the others on any important issue. Is that a healthy church? Hmm. Obviously not. Now, can you think of any examples where you have a collective good and an individual good that are in a situation where the, these goods are at odds with each other, where you would pick the, the individual good over the collective good? It might be a weird question to think off the top of your head, but where they come into conflict? So we would say that there is no such thing as a collective good as such. Okay. Uh, d- divorce from, because all, if, if we were going to use the language of collective good or common good for a group, yeah. uh, we would mean the good of each individual in that group, right? So there is a collective good for the church, many collective goods. So uh, the, the preaching of the true gospel, the, tr- the preaching of the Bible, um, prayer, worship of the true God, these are all things that are collectively good for the church. But the reason they're collectively good for the church is because they are good for each individual in the church, uh, th- there wouldn't be a case where you where if if you had a collective good that wasn't good for one of the individuals, then that individual isn't really part of that collective. Hmm. Could I give a concrete illustration here? So suppose somebody breaks into your house and let's say you have four kids and and you're married, you have a wife, and you go and you decide that you're going to try to fight these two men that have come into your house and you know that they're probably going to defeat you, but that you're going to save the life of your wife and your children because she's going to have time to call the police or escape or whatever. That's a a stereotypical situation that people would say, Oh, look, you sacrificed your life for the collective, your family. 
Um, and so the way most people will look at that is they'd say, ah, oh, yes, the common good was opposed to your individual good. And Jacob and I would look at that and say, there's only one right thing for the man to do in that situation. There's only one thing that's good for the man's eternal soul in that situation. And that is to stand up for his family because he has that responsibility. He chose that. And so we would not say that him dying in order to protect his little collective is against his good. We'd say that was, uh, it was not, I mean, it's not something to be celebrated, but out of all the options that he had, it was a good moral choice and it was good for him, even if he died. And that's consistent with what the Bible teaches. And the example of the apostles, they, they all were willing, if necessary, to die to spread the teaching of Jesus. Was it because they valued the collective over their own well-being? I don't think so. It was because they saw their well-being in obedience to our Lord. It's because they valued their own souls more than the popularity that they could have gotten from agreeing with the greater collective of the Roman world, or however you want to frame that, right? That they, they believed Jesus when Jesus said, what would it profit, amen? What would it profit you, Peter? What would it profit you, Paul, to gain the whole world, to gain the praise of the entire Roman Empire, the collective, and lose your soul? Yeah, that brings me to my next question. In listening to you guys, am I right in supposing that you all would classify yourselves as libertarians with regard to government? That'd be my first question. And then second of all, can you maybe explain the different views, libertarianism versus maybe conservatism versus progressivism and leftism? How do you, how do you cash out the big umbrella of that? We, we wouldn't voluntarily use the term libertarian to describe ourselves, though if you're going to think in contemporary terminology, that's probably the closest descriptor for our political beliefs. Okay. Um, the, the reason we don't like using the label libertarian is because, uh, one, it's very broad and it's got a lot of baggage that comes with it that we don't want to associate ourselves with. Um, but two, it, it, off, it also often um, doesn't have any sort of moral or philosophical basis to it. And so it ends up being arbitrary and somewhat vacuous, which mm lends itself to a lot of the baggage that comes along with it, right? So um, we, we absolutely would distance ourselves from the anarcho-capitalists, for instance, who would also probably loosely call themselves libertarians. And that might be one of the most popular brands of libertarianism out there is anarcho-capitalism or some form of anarchy, or they might call themselves minarchists. Um, they believe that government is a necessary evil or that it's an unnecessary evil and they just want to get rid of it. We would disagree with them. And this is disagreeing with most libertarians. We would say government is a necessary good. Hmm. Uh, we would just specify that it's good in a particular function. It, government has a nature just like everything else has a nature, just like the church has a nature, just like your family has a nature. Um, and it should stick to its nature. It should stick to what it's designed to do and not step outside of what it's designed to do. Uh, and, and the way that we flesh that out is the nature of government is that government is an agent of force. It is the agent which carries the sword, as the Bible says, right? Um, it's the agent of the sword of force in society. Uh, and so the question is, what is the moral use of force in society? Uh, and we would say the only moral use of force in society is in protection of individual rights. 
and if you want to go deeper into arguments about that, we can. But that, so that would be our position: is that the only you, the only uh, legitimate or moral use of force in society is in protection or defense of individual rights, which means that the government should be limited to only doing those things which are necessary to protect individual rights. And fleshed out, that looks like basically uh, a court system, a police system, and a military system that is uh, robust and uh, definite enough to do everything necessary to protect against threats to individual rights, both foreign and domestic. And yeah, and I want to jump into individual rights in a little bit, but first, um, does that, does your view of government being as such, is that funded from biblical theology, rationality, or both? Like how, how do you, what's a quick argument for that point of view? So looking at it from the biblical point of view, the first time that we see that there is a command that people should do something to other people in a negative way would be in Genesis, was it nine after the flood? Genesis nine, six, I think, uh, you know, God commands that if somebody kills somebody that by, uh, by, by other people, his blood will be shed. And so there we have an authority that God has given man to initiate for, or not to initiate, but to, to respond to an initiation of force. If there has been force initiated, then the man, uh, the other people have the responsibility given from God to judge that person, decide what happened, and, and then execute them if they committed murder. And then if you go further into the history of the Bible, you see that uh, the people needed a judge in order to have a cohesive society. They needed somebody to judge them. So when Israel was formed as a social unit after the Exodus, Moses became, became the judge of everybody, about 2 million people or so, right? And it was wearing them out. Everybody that had a disagreement they knew that they should not resolve it by simply resorting to force immediately. I, I think you stole this from me. I'm going to steal it back. We need to have an objective control over how force will be, um, will be used in our society and about how people will retaliate or, or respond to differences of opinion about ownership. And so uh, God told Moses, you set up a system of judges and there were, there were people that would judge the tens and hundreds and so on. And so this is this is what we see in the Bible as just normal. If you're going to have a society, you have to have a system for putting retaliatory force under objective control, for judging the wrongdoer and deciding what to, what to do with them. And, and that's consistent up until the time of the kings. And you know when the people say, "Give us a king," you know they they had judges already. But they wanted something more. They wanted somebody who was going to take their young men and their young women and their money and was going to build a glorious kingdom. And, and God looked at that and he w did not approve of that, but he gave it to them anyway, because they asked. And, and he, so, you, you know, there's, there's a consistent biblical theology of what the government should do. If, if you look at what, uh, what Matthew, what Jesus says in the book of Matthew, or if you look in Romans 13, it's, it's the judge. And mm -hmm. when the government goes further than that, when the government becomes you know, the, the, pers the, the organization that is taking control of all of the wealth of the society, that's considered oppression. And I mean, we can go further into like, Hey, what is oppression? What is justice? What are rights? But you can find those things in, in scripture. You know, it, it's oppression when you bribe a judge, it's not, it's not oppression when you make more money than your neighbor. This is, these are all things that you can see illustrated throughout scripture. If not, maybe not, maybe not laid out 
in a systematic way that we would ask for, but they're there. What would be some of the then philosophical arguments for the position that you're taking then with the government? Going back to the, the nature of government as an agent of force, the, the only thing the government can do is uh, to use force. Whatever the government does, it has to do it by force. Um, if you want uh, the government to give money to Joe, uh, the government doesn't have money of its own. It's got to take that from other people and it's got to take it by force, right? So uh, no matter what the government does, it has to do what it does by force. And the question is, all right, well, what, what is the moral use of force? And I, I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that the only moral use of force, period, is in response to an initiation of force, hmm. right? So it, it, I, I can't initiate force against you. That's immoral. Um, but I can use force, and I, in many cases, I must use force in response and defense against you initiating force against me. And especially if it's you initiating force against my loved ones or people who are under my care, you know, things like that. Um, and so the, the moral principle is that the only moral use of force is in response to initiations of force. And, and that, and since the government is by definition an agent of force, that gives us the definitional boundaries of what the government can and can't do. The government cannot do anything which would be initiating force. It can only, because it's an agent of force, the only thing it can do is respond to or prevent initiations of force. If it does anything beyond that, by definition, because it's an agent of force, it is by definition initiating force and thus being immoral. In fact, I saw a tweet the other day and I was like, man, this is so bad. But it was a, you know, kind of an influential Christian person. And they wrote, they had a meme with the guy with a kind of a smart aleck face saying, tell me again, where do you find rights in the Bible? You know, with the implication of, you know, the, can, this way of talking about rights, that individual rights is just a modern American thing that's not biblical. Um, maybe, maybe you guys could help us out. What are individual rights? Um, and what are the types that should be um, protected by the government? And is that grounded biblically or is that just kind of a secular philosophy that may or may not be arguable? Well, rights are found in the Bible. I'll find a couple of verses real quick. In Isaiah 10.2, it talks about how uh, you seek justice by, by uh, protecting people against anyone who would take away the right. Throughout Scripture, they, the word rights, if you search for it in, in that sense, it's not going to appear more than maybe a handful of times. But what will appear is justice and judgment. Hmm. And the judgment that they're talking about in that context always refers to restoring property to somebody who owns it. Hmm. So, you know, somebody who's being attacked by somebody else or sued by somebody else. That's the context in which rights are discussed. But I mean, you can find it in, in the Bible that they actually had the word rights. And it is, I mean, over time, they're developed, uh, you know, the Romans innovated on giving their citizens special rights because they were citizens. And over time, you know, more, more meaning has been added to the word. But the concept is there even in the Old Testament that there's certain things that people were entitled to it, it, rather, they were entitled to be left alone from certain things, and that's the that's the debate that we have today: is our our rights entitlements to be left alone from things, or are they entitlements to be given things by use of force? 
It's the negative versus the positive conception of rights. So we are strongly on the negative side of that. We see, we see that in every passage in scripture that, that talks about the oppressed or about rights. We, we aren't um, biblicist, so we wouldn't say that you have to get every aspect of your philosophy or even your moral philosophy from scripture. Uh, but we would say that uh, it definitely needs to be consistent with scripture. Um, right. And and it's great to, to be able to see that it, it consistently gets affirmed or confirmed in scripture. And I think that's what Cody's pointing out. There's, there, there's confirmation everywhere whenever the Bible talks about justice. Um, and, and that really is, you know, it, 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 if the Bible doesn't talk about rights explicitly, the root of rights is the concept of justice. Justice means giving what is due, and, and that assumes that something is rightfully due to somebody else. And that's where the concept of rights comes in. What are you rightfully due? Um, so if there is such a thing as justice, then there is such a thing as rights. And the, the question just becomes, what, what, what are you rightfully do as a human being? And we would say, you are rightfully do your own life, meaning you, you have a right to your own life. And we're talking about before other men. A lot of Christians will come in and they'll try to muddy the waters by saying, well, you don't have any rights before God. And they're right, we don't, because God created us. Um, so if we're talking about our relationship to God, I don't have any rights before God. God created me. He can do whatever he wants with me. I, I can't tell God, you have no right to do X to me, right? Um, but when we're talking about two other people horizontally, you have a right to your own life. God has given you stewardship over your own life. So you own your life. Um, so you have a right to do with your life according to your mind, according to your vision of God, according to your vision of reality. Um, and, and that entails the right to liberty, the right to do as you please with your life, um, provided that you're not violating somebody else's rights. And then the extension of that is, to property is that property is an extension of your life. To uh, Property is a sort of a concrete or static form of your past time and effort and focus and energy, right? If you create a net to catch fish with, you had to think it up. You had to gather the resources. You had to put in the effort to actually build it. Um, and it, you know, if, if we're talking pre-industrialization, uh, you know, you're just sitting alone on a desert island. That might have taken you four or five days of really hard work. Um, and then if somebody comes along and takes it, they are functionally enslaving you retroactively for the work that you put in to build that thing. That that's what property is, and and it doesn't change if it's in the form of cash or a house or a car or wh whatever it might be. Um, property is an extension of your life. It's the it's the concrete form of your life, and so and, and that's why it's an injustice uh, for somebody to steal or damage your property because in a way it's retroactively stealing or damaging your life. Would the right to, do, do you guys see the right to life and the right to property being an entailment of certain commands like thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal? Would that be a right way of thinking about that if you were to appeal to scripture to ground these rights? Yeah, uh, I mean, th th that's, that's the clearest place you can go in scripture. Um, 
to to affirm uh, the right to life and the right to property. You, you don't have a right to take anybody else's life. Thou shalt not murder. And you don't have a right to take anybody else's property. Thou shalt not steal. Um, so, I mean, you can't get much clearer than that in scripture. Um, but uh, a lot of people will try to say that uh, justice means um, giving pe people uh, what they need. And if that's the case, then there is no such thing as private property. And that command, thou shalt not steal, doesn't really make any sense. Because if, if you have something I need, then it's not really yours and it's not really stealing if I take it. Um, the, I, I would add one thing to what you're saying, Jacob, and that is just that some of the commands that we see in the Old Testament have a punishment associated with them. And so, you know, we don't, we don't reason from the Ten Commandments because God said something was wrong, therefore the government should punish you if you do it. Otherwise, what would you do with the Tenth Commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Uh, but what, what we do is we look at, if you, if you wanted to base this idea of property rights on the teaching of Scripture, it'd be very easy to do. First, you say it's immoral, as shown in the Ten Commandments, to steal, thou shalt not steal. But then you also look and you see what happens when people steal. He gives punishments. They have to pay it back plus. And so that's proof that the government's business is here. And that's an, I just wanted to add that, that that's something that you have to establish. You know, the, you talked about the definition of justice. Where, where does that definition you gave come from? Like, is that something that's relatively uncontroversial throughout history until the social justice movement? Or how do you, what's the uh, context of that? No, I mean, it, it's uncontroversial even within the context of social justice. Uh, universally, virtually everybody agrees that justice means giving people what they're due. Okay. Um, the only question what or they're the controversy due. is what, what are people do, right? Right. And social justice is going to say you figure out what someone's due based on their needs versus we're going to say uh, the, what somebody is due is based on their, their property rights and the causation that they put into uh, bringing that property and the value of that property about. And I know you guys have written and talked about Tim Keller's approach to that through his book, I think in the early 2000s um, about uh, justice. Can you maybe speak a little bit more about that distinction between need-based and rights, negative rights-based, or however you would cash it out, and what would be the, your argument for the negative rights being what we would call justice, what we sh should term properly as justices that were due? I'll speak to the, the sort of general theory, um, and then maybe I'll hand it off to Cody to talk more about uh, cashing it out in terms of rights, negative rights, and things like that. Um, the, the theory, and this is what's really important, I think, for Christians to understand, um, the theory of justice uh, as being, being merit-based is probably a good way to put it, rather than being needs-based is very important um, because it's linked to, uh, to accurately understanding the gospel. Uh, and this is what really uh, makes me passionate about this issue. So, on the need-based theory of justice, you owe something to someone when they need it, and you have more of it than you need. And, and that's what creates an injustice or an imbalance, and, and that's what initiates the act of justice would be you giving them what they need. Or 
potentially the government coming in and taking from you what you don't need to give to those who do need it. Right now, it's important to point out Tim Keller and others, uh, other Christians in particular, are going to say, no, we don't want the government to get involved in this type of justice. Or not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. <laughs> but, but they are still going to call it robbery, right? Tim Keller says, if you don't give generously to the poor who need it, you're robbing from them because justice is giving people what they need. So he does say it's robbery, but he's going to say, but I don't necessarily want the government to get involved. I'm not really sure how he would parse that out. It, it seems really difficult to call something robbery, but say, but the government shouldn't get involved. But m- maybe he's got some way of parsing it out. The, the more important problem here, though, is that if you apply this need-based theory of justice to God, it destroys the gospel and it turns the God of the Bible into a moral monster. Let me put it this way. What do we need that God has? Salvation? Heaven? Uh, eternity? There's a lot of stuff that God has in abundance that we need. And so if God is just, then what must he do? He must give us all those things that we need. Most notably of which is salvation. So, on this view of justice, God must save us as an act of justice. He owes it to us. It would be unjust of God not to save us if this view of justice, this need-based view of justice is accurate. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he doesn't need to save us. In fact, the Bible says he's going to allow some people to go to hell. And he says he's going to save some, but only as an act of grace, as an act of undeserved charity, not an act of justice. Because grace is undeserved, justice is deserved, right? So the God of the Bible is saying the exact opposite of what this view of justice would say. Which means that if this view of justice is true, then the God of the Bible is the most unjust being in the universe. It means that the God of the Bible is a moral monster and that we have a right to rebel against him because he is an unjust tyrant. So that's the biggest problem with this need-based theory of justice. It, it teaches people, whether implicitly or explicitly, to hate the God of the Bible to the degree that somebody believes in this need-based theory of justice and becomes convinced of it in their soul, they will hate the God of the Bible. No matter how much there's, they can have cognitive dissonance, but the degree to which they take it seriously and the degree to which they genuinely understand what the Bible is teaching about God and salvation, they are going to hate the God of the Bible. And so the alternative is, obviously that's not true. Right? The need-based theory of justice is not true. So what is true about justice? God says, the wages of sin is death. The wages, what you deserve, what, what you earn, because you earn wages, right? The wages of sin is death. Justice would be giving you, God giving you death, giving you eternal hell. 
justice would be God punishing you for your sins because you earned the punishment. So justice is earned according to God. Justice is merit-based. Grace is getting what you need in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it. Hmm. So the, the gospel hinges on the difference between justice being merit-based and grace being getting what you need even though you don't deserve it. So the gospel necessitates that we reject this need-based theory of justice and that we adopt a merit-based theory of justice where you, you get or you are owed what you deserve based on your merit, based on uh, how you earn it. And then I'll let Cody flesh out how does that, how does that flesh out in human relations when it comes to justice between humans. Great. Yeah, so I've been finding verses that talk about oppression and rights and what the government's role is. I think that you'll find this really clarifying because as you know, Jacob was just saying, the Bible is in support of this theory of justice that's not needs-based, but rather merit-based. And so imagine if you had a needs-based government and the judge is looking at a rich man and a poor man that are involved in a lawsuit. You say, well, the poor man we should show him partiality because he has needs. But that's exactly the opposite of what it says in Exodus 23, verse 3. It says, you shall, or, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. It explicitly says that you're not supposed to be partial toward the poor. Probably because somebody was going to come up with this needs-based theory of justice at some point. Uh, and similarly, in Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You should not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. So that's the overall principle. Uh, A couple other verses that come to mind that are really relevant to this. um, Ezekiel 45, 9. Thus says the Lord God, let it suffice you, O princes of Israel, remove violence and spoil and execute judgment and justice. Take away your exactions from my people, saith the Lord God. So they were were overly taxing the people. That's not the role of the governor or the judge. Um, that you know, violence and spoil and exactions of the people. Rather, the role of the judge. It's described in uh, several chapters back in Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-nine. He writes, "The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery, and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully." So he's showing us what it means to oppress somebody. That would be to exercise robbery. Uh, and and that's, that's the consistent pattern throughout the Old Testament is that there were people that were robbing others and getting away with it, either by bribing a judge or by, by bringing a ridiculous lawsuit or something like that. But th- that's, that's the overall perspective that you see through, throughout. And what's, it's so frustrating is that the leftists and the people that have embraced the need-based theory of justice they're going to read, say, let justice roll down like waters. And they just let you just assume that the Bible is talking about justice the way that the Democrats are talking about justice. But, but why don't we go to the Bible and actually look? I mean, it's very clear. It's the merit-based theory. It's the, who, did, you, did you own it? That's, that's the government's role is to make sure that the people maintain ownership of what they own. 
We hope you found that interview informative. Stay tuned for part two that will be coming soon in the Fremont Podcast. Don't forget, you can watch these God and Government series episodes on YouTube. There's a link in show notes directly to the YouTube video for this week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can get notified when new videos are posted. We'd love to interact with you on social media. You can follow us at FreemindFM on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook, FreemindPodcastFM. If you haven't gotten a chance yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And we also have bonus episodes with many of our special guests that you can access on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash freemindfm and support the show with any amount, you'll get access to all back catalog shows and Q&As that aren't released in the public feed. Thanks again for joining us. We'll catch you next time. Bye.